ill-equipped history, where two best friends who are not equipped to tell you about history do so anyway. I am joined by Morgan. How are you? I am great. How are you, Emily? Oh, I'm doing good. Um, well, I'm doing good now. I told you I had a story. Let me tell you what my husband did to me. Oh, gosh. I, I promised the kids that... I would take them to Crumble Cookie. Mm-hmm. And while at Crumble Cookie, she the lady very easily talked me into a four-pack because sweets. And so the kids had their two cookies, and then I got two for Nick and I to share. And, like, the next day, because we don't eat really that many sweets, we, are, we were still kind of just munching on the cookies. And while I am not even a full cup of coffee in, the next morning, he comes up to me and he shoves like a third of this cookie. And it's an Oreo stacked cookie. It's delicious. And he shoves it in my mouth. And I look at him and I'm like, you know, full mouth, thanks, honey, eating it. And then, and then I realize what he's done. And it hits me that he put hot honey in <laughs> cookie so i'm eating this beautiful lovely oreo with like a like a marshmallow filling sandwich cookie from crumble cookie and the next thing i know my mouth is on fire at 9 a.m that is just rude see and this is why i keep playing because sometimes it's a cookie and sometimes it's spicy but sometimes I get tricked, and he thought it was the funniest thing. He, like, turned around to, like, watch my face for when I realized what was happening. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> it was the last of the cookie, too. No! So you, didn't even, you didn't even get more cookie to, like, fix the flavor for you. No! No, I didn't. I just chugged my coffee. He did make me more iced coffee, so I'll give him that. Because I ran out very quickly yeah. with my mouth on fire. <sighs> so how are you? <laughs> I know. I am know. good. I thought he loved me. Um, today is first day back at work for realsies after winter break. Um, nice. And it was, you know, it was a day. Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. Um, it do be like that. It do be like that. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, that's all I got. That's great. That's all you got. <laughs> cool. Well, that means we can get into this skit. Let's do it. Real quick, like. <laughs> it's evening, and a group of friends, Brian, Ashley, Will, and Brenda, crowd around a table, focused on a board. Brian yells out in victory. Ha! Finally, I landed on boardwalk. I'll buy that. Are you sure about that, Brian? It will cost you all the money you have left. You won't have any money to develop it. And what about if you land on another property and have to pay? Just trust the process, Ashley. Give me the card, Will. All right. The next few players make their turns, buying and trading properties, developing their lands, and even making a trip to jail for one of them. It eventually comes back to Brian. He rolls the dice and makes his move. (laughs) Shit! No! I can't afford to pay for that, Brenda! 
Please don't make me pay. I'll be bankrupt. I'm sorry, but it's the rules. That'll be $400, please. Come on! Brian flips the board off the table in a fit of rage and storms off, leaving the house completely. Remind me not to invite him to the next game night. Agreed. Agreed. Monopoly has been ruining friendships for over a hundred years now. But it's just one of the many popular board games that have been created and loved over history. So what was the first one? And how did they develop into the games we have today? Morgan. <laughs> I guess you know what we're talking about today now. Board games. Board games. I love a good board game. Me too. And I'm very glad that both of us are healthy enough players that Monopoly has not ruined our friendship. <laughs> no. I mean, growing up, I don't know how many games we played. And I, as good as I say I am, I, I do lose. And it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I, when I play games, I will pretend to be mad. I will pretend to be like... I am a very competitive person, but my feelings aren't actually hurt, and I'm not a sore loser. Yeah. Um, I, it's kind of like part of the energy, like, when you're with a good group of friends and you're just, like, giving each other shit the entire time. Yeah. That's what I kind of what kind of do. But yeah, I, have... oh, I talk a lot of shit for someone who's bad at a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. But you were saying you have some friends that... Well, not friends, but I've I've played with people that are sore losers or just don't make the game fun to play. And it's always sad when, like, you run into... Be, like, you find yourself playing games with those people and they're like, well, this was supposed to be a fun little game, but it's not anymore. <laughs> I, I didn't know we were with, um, like, children... Yeah. Sore loser children. Yeah. I thought I was with other adults. Yeah. Okay. I've hey. even like corrected children uh before. Like they're like, Oh, I get another turn and I'm like, No, you didn't. You played yeah. you played your turn. It's now it's the next person's yeah. turn and they're like, Okay and then other adults have been like, Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> like Yeah. Uh I was playing trouble with the kids the other day and my son, he just kept he kept sneaking in. He kept trying to sneak in those extra ones mm -hmm. or he'd, you know, count the little things wrong. He'd like skip over ones. Mm -hmm. And I, I was con the whole game was just telling him and and my daughter as well, but telling them both like the rules about 50 million times. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, OK, and just bumbling through life. Like, yeah, <laughs> fine. <laughs> It's like if you're if a four and a six year old has more emotional intelligence than you do, I think you need to do some inner perspective yeah and honestly like sure. starting to play games at a pretty young age and losing those games is a good way to like build up some yeah. emotional resilience and learning yeah. how to lose <laughs> hey my son hasn't cried once when i've beat him in mario kart so far so but uh yeah because i'm not letting him win if he wants to win he's got to get good yeah so just gotta get practice yeah just you know family game nights it's fine <laughs> Okay, back on track. So, how old do you think the first board game was? 
or any like kind of game like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a board, but because uh, obviously that yeah, just games of that nature. Well, when you think about it, even animals have like games and they play. So I I'd say like probably since like humanity started making tools or like communicating and being in social groups, honestly. Actually, look at you being all smart. About 5000 <laughs> BCE is when they started seeing the first the the earliest evidence of games and it was dice. Oh. Okay. So yeah, the earliest game ever found was 49 small carved painted stones um and they were found found at Basur Hoyuk which is a burial mound in e- southeast Turkey. Okay. So similar games have been found in Syria and Iraq and seem to point to board games originating in the Fertile Crescent which um, is the regions around the Nile, Tigris, Euphrates River in the Middle East. What? So my episode next week is going to talk a lot about the Fertile Crescent. No! <laughs> Get out of my head! <laughs> Why are we the same people? I literally picked this topic and I was like, there's no way she's going to be able to find one it that's, is about a compl- has anything to do with this. It has nothing to do with board games at all, but... Most of it, like the the basis of it, takes place within the Fertile Crescent, which that is, really is so wild. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this is so weird. Um, the earliest uh, other early origin dice games were created by painting a single side of a flat stick. These sticks were tossed in unison, and the amount of painted si- with the amount of painted size showings would be your roll. So they kind of rolled them with sticks. Okay. Um, Mesopotamian dice were made from a variation of materials, including carved knuckle bones, wood, painted stones, and turtle shells. Now, find your way back to the skit and scroll on down. You'll see the Mesopotamian dice and some of those sticks as yeah. well. Yeah. And you can see they're kind of carved and painted, and it's really cool. That is really cool. Um, Eventually, the dice were made um, from a larger variety of materials, including brass, copper, glass, ivory, and marble. And dice in the Romanian era looked very similar to the dice today. So scroll down. It's going to blow your mind how similar they look. Wow. That looks like some D&D shit right there. It looks like modern dice. Yeah, and some even have the cut corners for added possibilities. And oh, I see that. that. Yeah, that to get like the higher number. And it, the source even said very similar to D&D games now, like those kinds of games. I mean, looking at these die, like die have not changed that much. Like the, the dots... No are in like almost the exact same configure uh, they are in the same configuration really except for the cut corners on like just traditional yeah. die but like the four the three the six it's all in the same configuration that's wild is it so skipping forward to 3100 bce and this is uh the ancient egyptian pharaohs loved board games 
specifically a game called Sinet. And the Sinet board itself is a grid of 30 squares. And you can scroll down and see two pictures of one is a hieroglyph and the other is the actual board. And they were arranged in three rows of 10. Uh, there are two sets of pawns, at least five in each set, some shorter, some more, you know, it varied. So historians have made like a guesstimation for the actual rules. Um, and it's been adopted by different countries, which make sets for sale today. So it might not be exactly what it is, but you can buy a version of Senet. It looks like it would be similar to like chess or checkers or something. Yeah, it's like if you, instead of a square, it's like a rectangle. Mm -hmm. And it's like three rows of ten. Mm -hmm. And there are little pieces that look like chess boards. Yeah, like the, there's like these little pawn type shapes that look like pawns on a chess board. So. And uh, the hieroglyph, if you look at it, it looks like a chessboard. It does. It looks like they're... Because it's from the side. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So, Sinet has been found in pre-dynastic and first dynasty burials and is found in several illustrations in tombs. So, it's a very important game. So, by the time the New Kingdom rolls around in Egypt, which is... Between 1550 and 1077 BCE, it had become kind of a talisman for the journey of the dead. So, Sinet boards were often placed in the grave along with other objects. We all know those kinds of objects um, for the dangerous journey through the afterlife. It was thought that the high element of luck in the game of Sinet was strongly tied to fate. And the Egyptians were really into the, the idea, the concept of fate. Mm -hmm. And a successful player was under the protection of the major gods of the national pantheon. Oh. Ra, Thoth, and sometimes Osiris himself. Oh, wow. And the game is even referred to in chapter uh, XVII, which is 17, of the Book of the Dead. That is very cool. So, in 3000 BCE, so about a hundred years after our previous um, mention, board games became adapted by the middle class. So, beforehand, it was all the uh, upper class pharaohs, you know, wherever you are in the world, that was it. Mm -hmm. And it quickly became tied to religious beliefs. And... Me Mehen is one of those. Um, the game represents the deity Mehen, who was envisioned by the sun cult, which is Egyptian, as a huge serpent who wrapped the sun god in its coils. And you can see a picture of that one. It looks like a snake all coiled around. Mm -hmm. Sometime before the Old Kingdom... The game and the god became intertwined, and it, it became synonymous with the serpent deity in texts. And one ancient Egyptian historian, Tim Kendall, believes that 
it isn't possible to know whether this deity was inspired by the game or was an already existing mythology. So they don't know if the game was inspired by the the deity or the deity was inspired by the game. Mm. Can you imagine being a deity and then your only existence is because of a board game? <laughs> well, okay, I guess. <laughs> Fine. It's re- it's giving the same vibes as like I read uh did you read The Hogfather? No. Okay. In The Hogfather, it's a Christmas book by Terry Pratchett. I highly suggest listening to it because the narrators are great, but there is a god or there... Yeah, there's a god of hangovers. And the the whole premise was like he was created because people believed in hangovers and he had like a little dude on his head hitting him in the head with a hammer. (laughs) And it was hilarious. But... (laughs) It's giving that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Similar Arab game known as the Hyena game shared several characteristics with Mayhem. And because of this, the game utilized in, oh, the gameplay utilized in the Hyena game has been adopted to fit the game of Mayhem. Okay. So because of its similarities, they're like, well, we don't really know how they were playing it. So we're just going to take the rules of another game. I'd be interested to see. It's kind of hard to tell. Mm Mm-hmm. You can make it bigger if you want to. That makes sense. It looks like there may be some etchings or engravings on the the serpent. So that look like like serpent scale. So I wonder, I'm very interested to know like how this game was played. Like it looks like it would be a marble game of some kind. Where the marbles like go around the grooves, but I have no idea. I have a rough um, explanation. Okay. So players each begin with six marbles and one lion. A lion. On a lion. Um, so stick dice, as depicted above, those you know, they determine your movement. Players start at the tail along the outer edge so the outside tail and move towards the center where the snake's head is i'm assuming in a circle and the players race to the center with their marble pieces so the six marbles and once uh the marble reaches the center the movement reverses and the players move towards the start again the lion piece is put into play, and somehow that that lion piece is a predatory piece, and it has to capture. It tries to eat the uh, the marbles. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, right. I want to play. I feel like there's games that kind of like existing games. I'm sure that follow a certain um structure. Yeah. Cool. I just want to know, like, how they would know how far to move the dice. I wonder if it was, like, if you move up, like, positions of the marbles or something. Like, if you got a two, you'd move forward, like, two die. 
or two marbles or something. I don't, I have no idea. Because there's not really yeah. um, etching. It's not like there's squares. Right. Yeah, it's not like there's little positions. Like, things. But I'm very proud of myself for guessing that it was a marble game. <laughs> you are very right. I, I was like staring at it thinking, how are the pieces going to stay on that rounded surface of the snake? Like, <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> so... In 2650 BCE, this is like blowing my mind. The Royal Game of Ur? I think it's Ur. Ur? The Royal Game of Ur is the longest running board game. Oh, wow. So I think this means because, you know, we have discussed other games that are being played right now. So what I think, how I interpreted this is... They 100% know the rules, how to play it, and they're not just, like, guessing at it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it was previously thought to be backgammon, but this is a little different. Um, it was originally thought to be long dead, but listen to this story. A game enthusiast, Irving Finkel, discovered the game's rules carved into an ancient stone tablet. What a hobby. Um, so then he spotted a photograph of an identical board game from modern day India. And then soon after, Finkel met with a retired school teacher who had played the game as a kid. So it was just kind of under the radar the whole time. People had still been playing it. Like it was... Like, local traditions, but it wasn't an established... Correct. Like, Like it just... People were just doing it, and they weren't just... You know, it's not like you could go out and just buy buy one at Walmart or whatever. Yeah. And he discovered the game's rules carved into an ancient stone tablet. So, he was able to tie what was still going on to something that was happening way back then. That's really cool. Which is fascinating to me. He was just a game enthusiast. Going above and beyond Irving Finkel. Good for you. Oh, sure. And the game gets its name um, from its founding within the royal tombs of Ur in Iraq. And there was also a set found in King Tut's tomb. Wow. Wow. And the royal game of Ur was played with two sets, one black and one white, of seven markers and three four-sided dice. Okay. And there is a picture of the Royal Game of Ur if you go down. Yes. It's are those um tile? Do you know? I don't know. I think they're the, it's almost painted. Mm-hmm. But they look very specific as well. It's like there's a pattern to what's going on here. Yeah. So I don't know how how to play it. It's really pretty. It is really pretty. And the um the little pieces are giving like if dominoes were round. Yeah. So around 2000 BCE, I am going to butcher this because it's Latin. Okay. So sorry. Ludus duodecim scriptorum. That sounds fine. Was it? Yeah. Was a board game popular during the time of the Roman empire. And the name translates as quote, game of 12 markings. And that likely refers to the three rows 
of 12 marks found on the board. And the game Tabula is thought to be a descendant of this game. And both are similar to the modern backgammon. Oh, okay. So this is where we see kind of like backgammon roots. And the only difference with modern backgammon were the use of an extra die. So three rather than two. And the starting of all pieces off the board. Instead, they entered in the same way that pieces on the bar entered in modern backgammon. I don't know how to play backgammon. I don't either. I used to play on like a, like an app on yeah. my mom's phone way long ago. Um, yeah. But I didn't really understand how to play. I just understood how to play like on the app. Yeah. And that was like 20 years I, ago. <laughs> I watched a lot of videos trying to figure out the the history of backgammon because it is kind of elusive. Like some people say some things and you're going to find this with like backgammon and chess and checkers. I believe they were all just like kind of convoluted and really hard to kind of narrow down. So if one source says one thing and another source says another thing, I am very sorry. I tried to get it all as streamlined as possible, but it, it's like I watched a lot of videos and a lot of the videos were just middle-aged men <laughs> saying how serious backgammon is. <laughs> and I don't understand why they called it. And this was even like back in the, the early 1900s. And I might get into this later. They referred to it as the cruelest game, like quote, the cruelest game. And I think because it's like, Half luck and half skill. So you've only got so much control. And this was before Monopoly was invented, so. And it, yeah. So they wouldn't know what the actual cruelest game was. They wouldn't know Mamaw Jimmy being absolutely ruthless with some, like, seven-year-olds. <laughs> they didn't have Mamaw Jimmy as a mammal. No. They or they not. would have called it the cruelest game. Yeah. I'm just, listen, I love Mamaw Jimmy, but she was not playing around with Monopoly for some reason. <laughs> so 1300 BCE is the Ludus Lantern Chlorum. And that was a two player strategy board game played throughout the Roman empire. And it has references as early as Homer's time and is said to resemble chess. So this is like the earliest version, iteration okay. of chess. And because of limited sources, reconstruction of the game's rules is difficult. But it's generally accepted to be a game of military tactics. Which is kind of what chess is anyway. I was about anyway. to say, like, people say that's similar to chess. Like, there's a lot of strategy involved. Yes, there is. And, I mean, you are going after, like, the king and the queen, and you've got, you know, you've got your bishops and, and your pawns and the knights. Yeah. And doo -doo. I used to be pretty good at chess. I haven't played in years, though. Yeah. I learned, and then I played for, like, a month or two, and then I forgot. <laughs> I played for years with my uncle. Like, I would just, I don't know. And then I just stopped playing one day. But 
Because of the large number of wars during the 13th century, it's believed that that was the influence on the game's theme of the military strategy. Makes sense. Yeah. War. War. It's always war. (laughs) You scared me a little bit. Sorry. It's okay. Um, The board is called the city, and each piece is called a dog. (laughs) In this game of war? In this game of war. It's like, (laughs) are you calling someone a dog, like, a bad thing? Or are you sending puppies to war? I don't. (laughs) <laughs> don't send the puppies it's just like the puppy bowl but bloodier send the war emus yeah yes go to australia <laughs> take all the emus there's plenty of them <laughs> not the puppies and they're bulletproof uh the <laughs> they don't even have bullets yet they're good <laughs> so would they be arrowproof do you think i mean if they're bulletproof yeah, surely the arrows aren't that sharp. I don't know. Well, I, I don't... mean, they'd outrun the, they'd outrun the arrow anyway. Yeah, just shoo. yeah, just zoom zoom, fast as fuck, boy. So I knew you were. Gonna... <laughs> That's my favorite. I can't not say it. Um, <laughs> I thought it, but the... I didn't want to take it from you. <laughs> you can say it anytime. Okay. I'll allow it. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. So. The pieces are two colors of two colors, so separate. Mm-hmm. They're not like two color each piece. Okay. And the art of the game consists in taking a piece of one color by enclosing it between two of the other color. Okay. So instead of like chess where you just like kick the shit out of their pawns and their knights and stuff, you're just like, mine, you have to like strategically get two around the one. Okay. Yeah, so, like I said, it is theorized that this game, not going to try to say the name again, may have had influence on the historical development of early chess. And we are going to get into backgammon chess and even checkers and a couple others later on in more detail. But for the sake of the timeline, (laughs) I thought I'd keep this concise for now. Yeah. So, around... 500 BC, so we've skipped from 1300 to 500, so I guess not a whole lot was going on between there, except I'm sure more war, because it's always going on. This is where we start to see children playing games, because before it was a very adult thing to do. The kids didn't really play these kind of games. And while technically not a board game, it I'm throwing it in here as an honorable mention, um, hopscotch was invented. No shit. I was like, I just thought that was some stuff we did as children. It was one of the first board games. Go back to the skit. Look at this hopscotch board from Rome. Oh my God. It's, mo- it looked, it's a mosaic. It's beautiful. They didn't have chalk, Morgan. They had to get they very serious They just with embedded it. it into the, the street. Yes. It's very pretty. That's so cool. Oh my and it gosh. It looks exactly like hopscotch. I mean, nothing's changed. I cannot believe hopscotch is like over 2,000 years old. Yes. And the rules are the same. 
There are many variations of the game all over the world, of course, but the general rules um, are you toss a stone, a coin, a bean bag, something into one of the squares, and then you have to not hop in that square. That's that's the rules. And uh, the game's first recorded reference in English-speaking world dates back to the 17th century and is usually under the name Scotch Hop or Scotch Hopper. They always have to make cute. things sound like... Why? <laughs> so extra. I mean, we love you, but you're so extra. <laughs> and according to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, the name formation came from the word hop, which I don't need to define hop, and... Scotch meaning an scratch, like a line scratched oh, okay. in. So you hop in the line. Okay. In 400 BCE, Liubo was the first board game to be developed in Asia. So games were played there, but they were iterations of other board games from other places and this was one of the first ones at least that they found Mm -hmm. that was developed in Asia and the game was played by two players it is believed each player had six game pieces that were moved around um, the points of the square game board and that like it, it had symbols patterns there were other stick dice things going on. I'm not going to get... I don't know. I didn't understand it, so I'm not going to try to reiterate the rules to you of a game we're not going to play today. So, yeah. yeah. So, Liubo was super popular in the Han Dynasty. and But it rapidly declined afterwards and almost became fully forgotten hmm. by, like, the next dynasty. So, knowledge of the game increased in recent years with archaeological discoveries of Liubo like found in ancient tombs and because the board games were these boards were made out of very mostly organic material typically only like the dice or other various pieces were found but and I'm quoting literally what the source wrote because it, cr- it cracked me up. I was sitting in the coffee shop and I giggled to myself because it says, quote, however, they found a whole freaking set in 1973 that was well preserved with an exclamation point. Like whoever wrote that was so excited. <laughs> and if you scroll down, I have That's a picture amazing. of the set. It's beautiful. But yeah, the whole freaking set. The whole freaking set. <laughs> Gosh, I wish I could have used the word freaking in any of my reports. I know. <laughs> no, that's really cool. And I can see it looks like um, in the center is where maybe a marble of some kind went. Yeah. Um, Here, let me, t- let me, I did, I do have a list of what is contained. Okay. So we have one lacquered wooden game box, one lacquered wooden game board, 12 cubic style ivory game piece it well cuboid they're not exactly cubes they're Mm -hmm. like flat cubes 
Um, six black, six white, 20 ivory game pieces, 30 rod-shaped ivory counting chips, 12 ivory throwing rods, one ivory knife, one ivory scepter, and one 18-sided die with the numbers 1 through 16 and characters meaning win and lose. Oh, wow. Oh, right? Isn't that... 18-sided die? Yeah, I don't know how you would do that. Lots of carving. Math. Yeah. Also, uh, can we take into appreciation that they did not go to their local Walmart and or Target and buy these sets? Somebody took the time and meticulously made this beautiful, like, game board set. And someone created the rules of it. Yeah. Someone was like, I've got an idea. I'm going to make us a new game. And it, like, popped off, and they had to make a bunch more of them. Yeah, no. That's really cool. And there isn't an official set of rules for this game, because there just wouldn't have been. Like, you were just expected to know what the rules were. (laughs) Get good. (laughs) Yeah, just get good. (laughs) Have you ever thought about just knowing the rules? I mean, (laughs) duh. (laughs) But it's... uh, But they have, like, a... Literally... I wrote, but there's a theorized version that's very complicated. I was going to write out a brief summary of the rules. There's no briefing to it. No. You either, like, read it all the way through or not. Well, with all the pieces Um, involved. Oh, my God. Yeah, just know that the the point of the game is to get six tokens. Okay. The first to do so wins. So what? And you got the that's the scepter and the knife and the dice and the throwing sticks. Are we the... stabbing people? <laughs> like, what kind of game is this? If anybody knows the the rules or how to play Liubo, send one over to the studios. <laughs> we'll play as long as we don't have to stab each other with it. <laughs> it's too much. So now we've got we're going a big skip. Okay, we're going from four hundred BCE. To 400 CE. Okay. Um, I don't know what was going on between then. Again, I mean, probably more important things than board games. So, there, a lot of things happened in that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's 800 years of yeah. just, ah. There's so, the, the creation of several religions going on. I think the Dark Ages yeah. were during that time. Yeah. There was a lot. Humanity happened, is what happened. <laughs> That's, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. So, Toffel, it's T-A-F-L, Taffel or Toffel games um, are a family of ancient Germanic and Celtic strategy board games played on a checkerboard with two armies of uneven numbers. I don't know how that works. Why uneven numbers? I mean, I guess that would be more realistic, but... If you had the less amount of numbers, like a less army, you'd have to just be good to win, I guess. I wonder if that's where, like, strategy comes in. Like, I wonder if it's, like, a who draws a short straw, you get the, the fewer amount of people you have to show your strategy. Possibly. Possibly. Or maybe, like, the person with the fewer people goes first or something. Hmm. Or maybe they have different strengths. Like you might have a big army, but maybe they're not as powerful as like the smaller army individually speaking. I don't know. So it's presumed that this indicated the cultural aspect 
by mimicking the success of Viking raids. So I guess we just answered that. <laughs> um, <laughs> still don't know how it was played, though. So Toffel spread everywhere that the Vikings traveled. So I guess they were like, we're going to take over your land. But here's a board game. Here you go. <laughs> this is fair. So that included Iceland, Britain, Ireland, and Lapland. And several iterations of the game were played across much of, you know, northern Europe. It's presumed that Toffel branched off into an iteration called Chaturin... Chaturanga. 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 And Chaturanga is an ancient Indian strategy game developed in the Gupta Empire... Don't know why I stuttered on that. It's not that hard. India, <laughs> Gupta Empire in India around the 6th century AD. So in the 7th century, it was adopted as Shatraj in Persia, which in turn was the form of chess brought to the late medieval Europe. Okay. So, so as a recap, Toffel was spread through thanks to the Vikings. And then Toffel branched off into an iteration called Chaturanga. Chaturanga was in India. Mm-hmm. I like all and the hand movements that you're doing to like... This is a physical manifestation of my brain right now. (laughs) I wish you guys could see what she's doing. We should start recording just for this reason. All of my... I cannot talk without my hands. I literally cannot. It's okay. So, you know. So then in the 7th century, the Chaturanga was adopted in Persia. And that turned into the form of chess that was brought into late medieval Europe. So it kind of just made like a like a circle. It came around. It came around. And <laughs> like I said around. before, like I said before, we talked about a different form of chess, you know, a thousand years before this. So, again, it's like convoluted where it's like I think some of it came around and then something inspired this and then this is similar to that. But it's kind of... I guess you only had so many options in the the early times of humanity on how to play games. Yeah. I mean, you base it off of life, like, of what's going on around you. And a lot of that's war and strategy. Yeah. And, I mean, art, a lot of times, it helps us explain, like, our life yeah. and our environment. And that... I mean, it makes sense for games as well. It does. You're correct. So, by the year 1000, it had spread throughout Europe. And then was introduced into the Iberian Peninsula by the Moors in the 10th century. It was described in a famous 13th century manuscript covering the Satyrange which is the the Ver- Persian chess. Um, and this 13th century manuscript covered not only the Persian chess, but backgammon and dice. 
And the dice game was named the Libro de los Huegos. Okay. Isn't Huegos egg? Say the, the name of the game again. Libro de los Huegos. It's like Book of the Egg. Or f- egg. I think Libro is book. Or it's freedom. I don't remember. <laughs> It's either book or freedom. Of Same thing. I'm surprised I got Wagos right. Okay. It's... Egg book. <laughs> okay. Um, any of my uh, fellow This Paranormal Life hardcore like listeners will know that like eggs are really funny for some reason in that podcast, so... <laughs> I don't That's know. all I'm thinking about right now. I don't think I've gotten to the, the egg pieces. Um, Eggs are basically in the commune. Um, the commune, sorry. Uh, it's a uh, <laughs> not a cult, but it, it's your currency. Eggs eggs oh, are okay. everything. Okay. Eggs are life. Let me see yeah. what episode I've gotten to. Uh, I'm in like the 170s. I know I'm still far behind, okay. but I'm, I'm getting there. I listen to them backwards. Oh, okay. I listen to most recent to like the the very first one and now I kind of want to start at the very first one and listen to it the correct way again. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. So, around 700 CE is when we see Mancala. Have you ever played Mancala? Is it like the the triangle game? Like the peg game? No. Are you thinking of Cracker Barrel? Yeah. No, not that one. So, oh. Mancala is actually a family of games instead of just like one specific game. I have played what is now, you just go to the store, you buy Mancala. You, that's the game you get. Um, when I was in my car accident when I was in the fifth grade, mm. because that was the early 2000s 2003 specifically i'm not much of a movie person as we've established as we've established so me and my family played a lot of games while i couldn't walk for 10 months Mm -hmm. so i got really good at rummy and i yeah monopoly and mancala and i would just sit at the hospital and play a lot of rummy so (laughs) yeah so i have played mancala it's been a long time probably since then since i've played it but It is known around the world as sewing games or count and capture games. So if you look at the pictures again, you'll see this is a Mancala board that was made into the ground instead of actually having a board that can go with you. And I believe that's from maybe, oh, I don't think I wrote down actually where that was found. Um, but more than 800 names of traditional Mancala games are known. So they've all got their own little twists. Okay. However, all they all are the same somehow. Okay. It's just, they're all the same, but they're a little different, I think. And But basically, there's rows of the same amount, and there's little pits. And you use stones or seeds for each opponent and you have to like pick up yours and I'm trying to remember from when I played like you would pick one up and then you would 
capture the other players like marbles or seeds or stones or whatever you're using. And I think the player with the most at the end wins. Okay. So that's kind of where we're at as far as like a timeline of development on the more ancient games. So let's get... We're going to back up just a little bit and go specifically into popular games throughout history that are still played today. Okay. So, starting as far back as 2000 BCE, we did mention the, the origins earlier. And with the invention of the double cube in the 1920s, so we're this is modern day, more modern day. So, we've talked about the origins, now we're getting into like... What it is now. Backgammon experienced a widespread revival across Europe and America in the 20s. And the popularity of backgammon surged again in the mid-1960s. Partly due to the charisma of Prince Alex Obolinsky, who was a Russian-American socialite. And he became known as the father of modern backgammon. And he co-founded the International Backgammon Association, which published a set of official rules. He also established the World Backgammon Club of Manhattan, which devised a backgammon tournament system in 1963. And he later organized the first major international backgammon tournament in March of 1964, which attracted royalty, celebrities, and the press. So he was just, like, getting it with the backgammon. Cool. And from there, backgammon clubs were formed and tournaments were held, resulting in a world championship, which was promoted in Las Vegas in 1967. And the game became a huge fad and was played on college campuses and country clubs and places, you know, like that. People all across the country, young and old, dusted off their boards and, you know, about to spill my drink, and came running. So, it got so popular that Cigarette, liquor, and car companies began to sponsor the tournaments, and Hugh Hefner held backgammon parties at the Playboy Mansion. Oh, my God. (laughs) Can you imagine going to the Playboy Mansion and, like... Playing backgammon? I'm I'm sure the bunnies are walking around, but, like, you're really there for the backgammon. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, fuck off, Susan, it's my turn! (laughs) man like all right some priorities so most recently the united states backgammon federation or the usbgf was originally organized in 2009 to repopularize the game in the United States. So I guess since then it has gone downhill. Board and committee members include many of the top players, tournament directors, and writers in the worldwide backgammon community. 
And like I said before, it was a game of skill and luck. You had to be, you had to have both mm-hmm. to win. And be, I, I did. I watched a lot of um, these and I sh- videos, and I should have put a picture on here, but me- most of the like more ancient artworks, and by ancient, I mean probably medieval times, Renaissance times, if it depicts backgammon, typically they're like in a dingy bar everyone's hammered and someone's flipping the board (laughs) i'm not gonna lie it looks like modern monopoly but like in a bar that's really funny (laughs) they're like mad there's like a bartender like (laughs) it's actually pretty funny but during my research i found backgammon boards for sale and they're bougie how much do you think i found one for this is just one side i found it on i mean i feel like you could get pretty luxurious with the materials on a backgammon board i'm sure you could use ivory or pearl like mother of pearl yeah thousand dollars fourteen y'all this is why we need to do video because her her mouth is on the floor cartoon style just it dropped dropped yeah fourteen thousand um let me see is it like a solid gold board let's see no i don't know how much things are worth I don't either. Okay, now just scroll to the bottom. Oh, sorry, the one to the right, the Marilyn Monroe one's nineteen thousand seven hundred and twenty dollars. Coming soon. The fourteen it's fourteen thousand seven hundred and eighty dollars and it's just got a big butterfly in the middle of it. The geometric one is really cool, but I think that would stress me out, the pattern of it. The butter I mean the butterfly one is Oh my god, there's but... more. Oh, there's more. Where are you seeing I more? Did... Oh, I if did... you scroll. You you can yeah, grab them. 19,000. Like the cheapest one I'm finding <gasps> is $5,700. Ooh, poppies and cranes. That's pretty. But why? What is it made out of? I don't know. Oh. Uh, what? I clicked on the the poppies and crane. Okay, so it is seventy seven by sixty by five centimeters. Sustainable marquetry woods include bubinga, ripple sycamore, ripple sycamore, English holly, and dried red tulip. Zircote wood box with signature fastenings, semi precious mother of pearl, and malachite playing pieces black calf leather shakers, precision laser cut dice and weighted doubling cube. Personalization options include laser engraved dates, initials, or handwritten messages. And they're probably handmade, so it just makes it even more expensive. I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm sure they're handmade, but... Wow. That's more than I made in my part-time job last year. I will say, though, I'm scrolling through. I'm still on the poppies and cranes 
One, I am like, too. They're beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, works of art, honestly. Like the the pieces, like the round pieces, are they look like like gemstones. Yeah. I mean, I I get it. I don't get it, but I get it. Like, look, if I had fuck it money and knew how to play backgammon, yeah, I would get this. <laughs> I could see it. Money. Yeah, but. To the average Joe. <laughs> no. No way. No. Oh, the the engraving is an extra $530. Just. Just. I mean, when you compare it mm-hmm. to the 14790 mm-hmm. pocket change. Or the almost $20,000 Marilyn Monroe backgammon set. That is just wild to me. I can't believe it was almost $20,000. Featuring never-before-seen portraits of the screen legend Marilyn Monroe, photographed by renowned fashion and celebrity photographer Milton H. Green. By the way, listener, if you want to spend $20,000 on a backgammon set, go to alexandraewellen.com, I guess. Yeah. I would never want to play with it. No, I would just look at it so stressed about just owning it it and it has like a mirror finish it's very pretty it's it's beautiful okay okay sorry we're just like geeking no we're on these (laughs) backgammon boards backgammon okay um so on to the next game chess i know we, we did get into the origins but um so when chess came to germany the term for chess and check, which had a ri- which is kind of what they said in Persia. Okay. Entered the German language as Schach. But that word was already a native German word for robbery. <laughs> <laughs> so as a result, uh Ludus Latrin Calorum which was mentioned earlier, was often used as a medieval Latin name for chess. And around 1200 um, AD, the rules for the Persian form of chess started to be modified in Southern Europe. And around 1475, several major changes made the game today's game basically. So the pawns gained the option of advancing two squares on their first move while bishops and queens acquired their modern abilities. So the queen can go anywhere and do anything because she is the queen. And that's the only one I remember really, (laughs) except the horse moves up and over like an L. Yes. So the queen replaced the earlier vizier chess piece. Is it vizier? Vizier? Vizier. Vizier chess piece towards the end of the 10th century and by the 15th century had become the most powerful piece as she should and consequently modern chess was referred to as queen's chess or mad queen's chess okay okay so these new rules quickly spread throughout western europe and the rules concerning stalemates were finalized in the early 19th century so During the Age of Enlightenment, chess was viewed as a means of self-improvement. 
Benjamin Franklin even wrote an article titled, quote, The Morals of Chess in 1750. And he stated, this is a long one, so buckle up, quote, The game of chess is not merely an idle amusement. Several very valuable qualities of the mind, useful in the course of human life, are to be acquired and strengthened by it so as to become habits ready on all occasions for life is a kind of chess in which we have often points to gain and competitors or advisories to contend with and in which there is a vast variety of good and ill events that are in some degree the effect of prudence or the want of it by playing at chess then we may learn end quote He's very passionate. Yes, very passionate about chess. This is like, this will save your life. Make you a man. (laughs) I mean, it was Ben Franklin. Was that before or after he got shocked by the lightning? (laughs) So chess was soon after implemented into schools where the first chess clubs began. So in this time period... Where backgammon was seen as, we're going to play this at the bar and get drunk and then flip the thing when it doesn't go our way. Chess was seen as very classy. Dignified. In the home. Dignified. Yes, that's a great word for it. It was like, we played it in the home with some music playing in the background and we like stir our brandy or, you know, it's like... Painting a picture for y'all. I was going to say scotch, but I think brandy was a nice touch. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, it was seen as, like, classy, and you wouldn't act like that when you were playing chess. Only, you only got wild on backgammon. Mm -hmm. So, fun little fact here. While chess isn't officially in the Olympics, it is recognized as a sport by the International Olympics Committee. Oh, okay. And it even has its own... Olympiad held every two years as a team event and most countries have a national chess organization as well. So listen, we are already an hour in. I deleted two pages worth of notes (laughs) on the development of the chess world championship and then decided we didn't have time for it because I was at like 16 pages oh of notes God. at that point. <laughs> and I was like, I think I need to cut this. So please know I meant, well, a lot of bullshit was going on. At yeah. one point, the winner of like the chess championship was like, this was before like official rules. They're like, I don't want to defend it. I'm going to go 10 year streaks without accepting uh, like an opponent so I can hold on to the world to the like championship title for like longer. I, he was being a baby about it and <laughs> it was like 10 years and then he won again. And then it was like another 10 years wow. and they were, people were like, you have to play somebody. Yeah. Like, you can't just win one time and then be like, I am the champion. It's not like being a politician or like something where it's yeah. like, all right, now I got it now. It's my term. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you have to. So eventually through like all sorts of bullshittery, they eventually were like, you have to defend your title every three years. Okay. So 
that's what happened. So the chess world championship was made official in 1886, but they had like a unofficial title for more than 50 years before that. So they were kind of doing their own thing, local things, and then it became official in 1886. So I literally wrote, there is so much more, but it would take up the rest of the episode. There was eventually a women's championship in the 1920s. So All right. <laughs> that's when that happened. There, there's so the current some things you can watch uh, yes. about chess. Please Google it. The, I will tell you the current grandmaster is Ding Liren from China. That's the men. The current women's grandmaster is Ju Wenzhen from China. So they're both from China. So they're really killing it out there. Good for you, China. <laughs> so the next one, checkers. And I put this third because it could either be third or it could be first. Okay. Because who the fuck knows, honestly. <laughs> um, some say the earliest artifacts were found as long ago as 3000 BCE in your in Iraq. So apparently they were maybe considering like the game of your part of it or maybe they had multiple games going on at the same time i don't know some say that checkers were inspired by the 1400 bce game from egypt called alkerke which is a multi-piece strategy game where in the 1000s a frenchman tried to play alkerke on a chessboard with 12 backgammon pieces. He Frankenstein this game together and he called it Fierges, making it the first iteration of the game we play today. And in 1756, an English mathematician, William Payne, wrote the first official rule book. And that's when it started to become, become known as drafts in the UK, checkers in the US. Okay. So, I don't think... One has to be wrong. Oh, also, some say it originated in Spain. No other explanation as to that. So <laughs> thank you, source. Who knows on that one? But I think it's probable that the games were adapted into checkers we know today. The sources say different things, but that doesn't mean that the 3000 BCE one didn't inspire the other or, you know, how things evolve over yeah. time. And nothing's so, always, like, super linear or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking of, like, I keep going back to the beer episode where it was just chaos until now we have beer. Yeah. So, you know. So, in the original game of checkers, with the first original rule book, capture was optional. Oh, okay. I don't know why you wouldn't, though. But anyway, compulsory capture was introduced in the 16th century. If a player neglected to capture, he was penalized by being hewed. I don't know what that means. Hewed. <laughs> hewed. <laughs> hew, hew. So this version of the game started to be known in France as Jou Force. Jou Force. Also known in other areas as checkers. So more chaos is ensuing. I don't know why. So <laughs> in France, Jouforce was replaced by another form of checkers known as Le Grand. It's spelled for cat. F-O-R-C-A-T. For cat? 
Forca? It's France. Fuck. I it's don't know. Fr- <laughs> it's France. I just said France. It's, it's France. <laughs> it's France. So that became obsolete in the 1720s and was replaced by the game we call Polish or Continental Checkers, which was being played throughout mainland Europe. So again, and I, I'm putting this in quotes because this is what the um, source said. It says, various authorities <laughs> have different theories to the specific origin and I wrote, sounds like a whole lot of he said, she said, who freaking knows. Yeah. Because I, who knows? Yeah, that, that happens, you know, especially yeah. in this podcast. Like, it's just like, eh, no one thought yeah, to well. write it down at the time. So we don't really know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And all I know is that when I think of checkers, I think of Cracker Barrel. Yep. You too? Yeah. Because what else do you do when you're waiting? You play checkers or you shop and I can tell you which one's cheaper. <laughs> Cracker Barrel ain't cheap. I haven't been to a Cracker Barrel in years. So now we're getting into more modern games. One of my absolute favorites, the game of life. That's a good one. I remember like going to um, on your birthday parties at your your camper on the the river, yeah. being like, "Let's play life, let's play life, y'all." <laughs> I just, I just wanted someone to play board games with me. I was desperate. <laughs> so, okay, so the beginning of the story doesn't seem like it would tie into the creation of a board game, but trust the process. Okay. Unlike Brian from our skit, this is a good process, not his <laughs> shitty strategy. So. <laughs> In 1856, Milton Bradley landed a job as a mechanical draftsman. From there, he developed his skills as a lithographer, where he was successful in making Abraham Lincoln's lithograph when Abraham Lincoln was still clean-shaven. That's an important factor. So for y'all that don't know, lithography is the process done by stone and metal that closely resembles painting but it's more like you carve the image into stone or metal and it's like a stamp so Mm -hmm. you you know stamp it onto the fabric instead of it being painted or like rolled on as like a printing press yeah so printing press it like rolls and then like the the or not the printing press you know what i'm trying to say like it there's a roll the lithograph is like a stamp so when lincoln was won the election in 1860. He then decided to grow his beard out, which made Milton Bradley's lithographs plummet in value. Mm -hmm. And he had a very large stock in them and it bankrupted him. Oh no. All because of Lincoln's beard. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. It made all of the ones he had stockpiled because he was like, woo, Lincoln won. And I was like, he grew out his what? Well, like, he honestly, like, if you look at pictures with Lincoln with his beard and without his beard, he doesn't look like the same man. He looks he very not. different with his beard. Very different. I Because I saw the picture of the lithograph. I don't think I put it on here. I don't think you And did. I'm very sorry about that. He was thinking of a way to get back on his feet after his loss. And he was playing a board game with his friends. And he thought of an idea for a game that would... 
simulate a person's life. And that's when he created the game called the Checkered Game of Life. Now, I do have that. If you go below, I got the order mixed up. So go below, below that one and you'll see like a checkerboard almost. It's the Checkered Game of Life. Mm-hmm. So it had 64 squares. Players used a spinner to move their counter across the board. They would begin on the infancy tile at the bottom left of the board and make their way towards happy old age. So along the way, players could land on squares such as poverty, school, bravery, and idleness, and others that were darker. So I want to know if you see any that are kind of... And you can make it bigger if need be here. I'll make it. Let's see. I see. What is Fat Office? Oh, no, I didn't oh see that one. A fat Office? It doesn't even, it has no, like, context clues. It just says Fat Office. Um, I see. Uh, oh. Maybe, maybe it's a good job? Maybe. Um, I see suicide. That's pretty dark. Yes. Ruin. Yep. Yep. Mm. There's crime. You go to prison. And there's one. Oh, gambling. You go to ruin. Mm-hmm. So this has like like fast track to like government contract. You go to wealth. Yeah. And the way that I'm seeing it is. You start infancies in the bottom left corner, and it looks like checkers. So imagine that, listeners. And I'm imagining like shoots and ladder style. You go all the way to the right, you go up, you go all the way to the left, you go up, you go all the way to the right is how I'm seeing it. It's just interesting because you go, if that's the case, you go straight from infancy to disgrace. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's got a little dunce cap. Let's hope you don't roll it too. Yeah. So the game was an overnight success. And during the, that first winter, Bradley sold more than 40,000 copies. Wow. And in the next spring was the beginning of the Civil War. And he then saw a target audience, created an inexpensive game kit that were super small so the soldiers could carry them with them. So when they had idle time, they could play games. And in 1866, he earned the patent for the game. And due, and I'm sure you'll be able to see this pattern now that I'm pointing it out. Due to his religious upbringing, the game had a very clear moral code. And it taught about taking the high moral road and walking the appropriate path. And the game had a spinner instead of dice because dice were associated with gambling. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to be associated with that. So he created the spinner. Do you know if this And when Bradley f- Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say do you know if this is the first game that used a spinner? You know, I don't. I don't know that. But I kind of got the the idea of the the religious aspect to it when it says like intemperance leads to poverty, and then just matrimony instead of like yeah uh, like marriage or 
whatever matrimony matrimony it's just telling me like other games with spinners but i think maybe it was okay that's really cool i could be wrong about that i'm not seeing anything that says it wasn't the first one um but i think milton bradley's company also created twister so that's That's fun pretty cool yeah so when bradley died in 1911 the game started to shift from the moral lesson to of okay so before you were just trying to have a happy end of your life yes and now it's more of like materialistic american dream the point of the game is to have as much money as you can have yep and retire as wealthy as possible so this is when we see the removal of the suicide ruin and other squares like that. Now the board itself stayed the same um, until its 100th anniversary in 1960. Wow! And that's if you scroll down below, that is um, one of the first iterations of the the original like 1960s how we see it today okay very similar to what we have i mean the squares look different um the colors are very like 60s yeah i'm not gonna lie on it like the spinner looks bright and fun yeah the spinner does look the same but it's very bright and fun. And even the little, like, buildings yeah. where they're at that you, like, pop them in are the same. And I love the little bridges and stuff. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. I can't, like, I don't know why. It's it's kind of interesting to think about how old the game is. But it's modern iteration didn't come about until, like, 70 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, they didn't change it too too much they put more squares in there of course Mm -hmm. but it's still one line you're following yeah basically i mean there's a couple branch off but you still end up on the same line yeah it's just they made it all twisty turvy yeah so on to the next monopoly so it was originally invented by lizzie maggie and she was one of America's first board game designers. And it was originally called the Landlord's Game. And I do have that as well. I'm sure you saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks pretty much, you know, like a not colorful version of Monopoly. Yeah. There's some, I mean, questionable squares like the Poor House. I was just looking um, at that one. Yeah. Go to jail, no trespassing. Mother Earth gives you $100. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Mother Earth. So, it was designed uh, to be a practical demonstration of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences. So, I think it was teaching... Um, she based it off the principles of Georgism, which is... a a system proposed by Henry George with the objective of demonstrating how rents enrich property owners and impoverished tenants. Yeah. The game eventually turned out to be the opposite message of what she was trying to convey because it was more fun that way. (laughs) Yes. So 
the game, like it does today, consisted of a square track with a row of properties around the outside that players could buy. The game board had four railroads, two utilities, a jail, and a corner named Labor Upon Mother Earth Produces Wages which earns players $100 each time they pass, instead of the now $200. Mm-hmm. So Maggie also hoped that when um, played by children, the game would provoke their natural suspicions of unfairness and such, and <laughs> that might carry their awareness into childhood. But Maggie sold the patent to Parker Brothers in 1935, And they had originally rejected the game, but upon its popularity, they kind of changed their mind. Do you know how much she sold that game for? Not enough. I don't know how much. I just know from like... $500. What? In 1935. Oh my god. 1935. $500. Eleven thousand five hundred and fifty-eight dollars and twelve cents. Oh my God! This poor woman. She needed to sell it for at least a couple million in she today's money. Should have earned. What would have been more financial? I mean, I'm not a finance person, but at least like royalties or something. Oh, so she can absolutely keep, continue earning keep that money coming. Yeah, and I know money isn't everything, but oh my God! If you make a successful thing, do not sell it for a flat fund you want to continue to get money from it yeah if you can do that yeah financial advice from two people who don't have money (laughs) new podcast idea financial (laughs) advice from two broke ass bitches (laughs) ill-equipped finances (laughs) i love it I can hear the intro now. Welcome to Ill-Equipped Finances. We're not equipped to tell you anything about money, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Legally, do not take our advice. <laughs> Don't sue us. So <laughs> We have no money. You ain't getting none. <laughs> yeah, right? Do you want my tears? <laughs> I made you a sweater with my tears. <laughs> Uh, I hope y'all got that Spongebob reference. Okay, so the last game specifically that we're going to talk about today, and then we've got a couple other things, but is the Settlers of Catan. I know that And it turns out, my mom and dad used to play this game. Really? Yeah, I was like, you did what? (laughs) I've never played this game. I've played I live under a rock, but... It's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a few people I know. It's their favorite game. When I was playing it, there was a group I would play with, and it was there was a person that made the game not fun to play with. So mm. I stopped wanting One to of those. play. Um, yeah. I've wanted to go back to it, but it it was like to the point where I didn't want to play the game at all anymore. I didn't like the game because of my experience playing it. But I know it's a oh, lot no. of people's favorite games, so. I would be definitely willing to retry it with a better group of people to play it with. Okay, we should buy it and then we should play it this weekend. Sure. 
when you're in town. If, if we, we have time. time. <laughs> if we have time. Oh my God, we always do this. We're like, we're going to do all the things in two days. Yeah. No. So, Settlers of Catan came out in 1995 when we were just wee babes, two years old. So, um, it was one of the first Euro games to achieve popularity outside of Europe. Okay. And over 24 million games in the Catan series have been sold, and the game has been translated into over 30 languages. Catan's popularity in the United States has gotten it dubbed, quote, the board game of our time by the Washington Post. And it's also featured in the 2012 American documentary film titled Going Cardboard, which details the game's impact on American gaming communities. So the game was created by Klaus Tuber, who was working as a dental technician outside the industrial city of Darmstadt, Germany, Darm. Darmstadt, Germany. Sorry, guys. In the 80s. He was creating board games in his spare time. Just kind of as a hobby. Get away from work. Yeah, casual. And the source said he is baffled by the popularity of his game. Aww. <laughs> I know. He seems so nice. <laughs> um, so Catan is considered a gateway to Euro games. Like a gateway drug to Euro games. What's so specific about Euro games? <laughs> Euro games are, and I know this because my mom asked and I had to find it in here. So Euro game genre is a class of tabletop game that generally downplays luck, um, has indirect player interaction, and focuses on economics and strategy. Okay. And that's very much Settlers of Catan. So it's, it's giving like strategy world building vibes. Yeah. Is that kind of yeah, like what that is? In okay. Settlers of Catan, you're trying to collect resources. Um, yeah. Because you want your settlement to be, like, successful. Um, right. And you want to, like, try to get as much of the land and resources as possible. But there's, mm -hmm. it's very, like, I think you can trade with other players, um, but you have to, like, agree on the trade. And, um, yeah, but it's very, like, you are trying to beat the other players by collecting as many resources as you can for yourself right. instead of, like, cooperation. Okay. So are you, like, directly, like, trying to attack the other settlers as well? There's not really war. Um, okay. It's not, like, risk or anything like that. It's... I, I don't think there's a battle element. You're just trying... Like, you can only collect resources of tiles that are, like, connected to yours. So you're yeah. trying to, like, beat the other players and collecting resources. Okay. Um, from what I remember, it's been almost a decade since I've played Settlers oh, of no. Catan, so I don't remember all the rules. But that's what I remember. It's like, there's, like, five different materials that you collect and you're just trying to collect. Because there's, like, um like goals that you want to try to get like if you have the most sheep or the most wood or the most land i don't remember but um oh, okay so you're trying to win like achievements and stuff yeah like that. but also the, okay um materials from what right. i remember i may be wrong i'm sorry 
better than me. I haven't played it. <laughs> so, Settlers of Catan was prim- a primary catalyst for the sudden popularity in board games in the United States. And it kind of made people more hungry for games. And um, for games that had like a very different set of rules and mechanics. So, that's when we're starting to see a big, broad expansion of games. So, a couple fun little facts is the Spiel des Jahres, Jahres, is a German title that simply translates to Game of the Year. So, it's basically the Oscars of board games okay. is what they call it. So, it's rewarding the excellence in game design, promoting top quality games in the German market, and it is thought that existent, the, the, the award is a really big driver of the quality of games coming out of Germany. So they're making really good games to try to get this award. And the winner of this can usually expect to sell 300,000 to 500,000 copies thanks to this award. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And the criteria on which the games are evaluated are the concept meaning originality, playability, and game value. The rule structure, composition, clearness, uh, comprehensibility, the layout, including the box, the board, and the rules, and the design, so like the functionality and the workmanship. So this award has been responsible for the popularity and growth of games like Settlers of Catan, Dominion, Hannaby and Dixit. I've heard of Dominion. So, and also it is a big main driver of other Euro games making it to other places. Okay. So, a brief PSA about Kickstarter. I don't know who does or does not know. Please, t- I, I live under a rock and I know about Kickstarter. But, most um, game designers are doing it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. So there are tons and tons of Kickstarters out there for games. And the Conan board game Kickstarter campaign launched in January of 2015 with a goal of $80,000 to get their board made. Not only did it receive full funding within five minutes and 37 seconds. Oh my God. <laughs> It went on to raise $3,327,757. Yeah, basically $3.3 million. That's awesome. I fucked that number up. But yeah, so, and that happens a lot. So if you yeah. really want, if you see a game and you really want it to like go forward, go give them money on their Kickstarter. I did that. Um, it's not a board game, it's a, a tabletop right. RPG game, but there's. Um, an Avatar The Last Airbender role-playing game that went on Kickstarter. Yeah. I, I think I came across it on Facebook, and when I backed it, they had exceeded their goal. I think their goal was, like, fifty or $500,000. I'm not... I don't remember. It wasn't yeah. that much. Um, but I'd caught it pretty early, and then I went to go check back, like, a few months later, um, when the campaign had ended. It had raised $11 million. Oh my god. Now you can buy it in stores. It's really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. 
they they're like y'all like we cannot believe the level of support we got for this little tabletop game yeah like it's <laughs> and they're like okay well you're like you already signed up to get all of these things when you backed us but now we're throwing in a few, like some freebies and like there's monthly updates and now you can buy it in stores because they got so many so much money they're able to like sell it to like you can buy it at target that is so cool. Really I awesome. love when stuff happens like that. It's like you you go. Yeah. You go. So that's basically all I have on, you know, board games and the the wild history of it. Yeah. That's really cool. And there I mean there's so many different kinds of games out there. Like I'm just thinking yeah. some of my personal favorites. Like I played Scrabble over winter yeah. break with my family and my my grandfather accused me of cheating, even though he tried to cheat. Uh, Rude. <laughs> um, I love Clue. That's a that's a classic. Um, I don't think I've ever played Clue. What? I know. How have you never played my Clue? rock? Because but you were in I a am... hospital for ten months. How did you not ever play Clue? <laughs> I I don't know. I. I played a lot of Rummy, um, because I was kind of stuck playing what also my parents liked to play. Yeah. And I lo- played a lot of Solitaire, because mm-hmm. I was alone. <laughs> we weren't friends yet, unfortunately. No, unfortunately not. One, the next but year. Corey, the next year. The next year. Friends. Corey and I were friends, and she used to, I could see the school from my, like, backyard, and she used to bring, walk my homework to me every day and then hang out with me and then her mom would come pick her up it was great but please listeners don't feel too bad for me i was like homeschooled through the school Mm -hmm. that year it's called not like it's called homebound services yes okay that thank you for the words i only had to do like my homework at the house and the teacher came and sat with me for three hours a week. Mm-hmm. So I was just living my wheelchair-bound best life What's really that year. funny is that I actually, before I knew Emily, I saw her because uh, her mom would bring her in her wheelchair to her homeroom class, which was my reading class during, like, the reading block. It only yeah. happened, like, once or twice, I think, that I saw her. But I was like, oh, that poor girl's in a wheelchair. And then the next year we became friends. I was like, were you the one in the wheelchair last year? <laughs> I was. <laughs> it was me. I also had a walker because I kept falling on my crutches. <laughs> <laughs> I fell down the stairs a few times. <laughs> so my dad put a license plate on my walker (laughs) one that's very in character for you and two of course your dad put a license plate on your walker yeah it was really cool (laughs) fast fuck boy I told you, I just encompass an old <laughs> granny from like birth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I 
I also learned, um, I think one of the times I fell on the crutches was because we had hardwood floors and uh, my foot was, the foot that could touch the ground was cold and I was wearing a sock and I slipped. (laughs) And I like kicked the wall with the foot in the cast and my parents were like, they were like, are you okay? And I was like, I just don't look at me for a few minutes. (laughs) Just just leave me alone. Gotta wear the I'll grippy socks. I, <laughs> I wasn't in that kind of hospital. <laughs> you would have slipped. That's <laughs> true. That's <laughs> true. Actually, I'm not going to lie. My mom, because she works in nursing homes um, and assisted livings my entire life, she brought me home some of the grippy socks from the nursing home she worked at. So I had like a walker and like old lady grippy socks. You've been 85 since you were in fifth grade. I've been 85 since I was 10. Uh, uh, If you can't laugh, you're not doing it right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> um, should we like get into socials or something? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we should. Okay. Um, if you liked this, <laughs> you can find us on uh, Facebook. That's group and page. Ill-equipped history podcast Facebook group and page. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash ill-equipped history. Instagram. At ill-equipped history. Gmail. Ill-equipped history at gmail.com. Am I missing one? We TikTok. have a TikTok. At ill-equipped history. We have some pretty pretty funny ones up there, if I do say so myself. Listen, I keep laughing at the ones I make, so, you know. I was crying the entire time I made the beans one. Yeah. Beans. <laughs> Would it be queen of beans? <laughs> queen of beans. Okay. Also, we have, um, for our January um, bonus episode, we have an awesome one out this month um, about New Orleans, and it's like two and a half hours of just... The deep dive history, but also somehow not deep dive because it's New Orleans and there's a lot of history. Yes. And at the end, you do get some stories. Yes. And also at the beginning, you get some stories. So, you know, history and personal stories from New Orleans. Who doesn't like that? Yeah. Uh, it's something that, like, this was, that was an episode that me and Emily were super into for sure. Uh, and both of us kind of went a little little crazy on it. So We did. We did. Um yeah. You get to hear me almost falling into the poncha train. <laughs> so <laughs> go check that out yeah. on our Patreon. Yes. Uh, and if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll have access to all of our bonus episodes. You'll get a shout out mm-hmm. and a sticker. Um, yeah. And, and if, uh, if you lose in Monopoly, be the bigger person and don't flip the board. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay to lose. Like, it, can it be yeah. frustrating? Yeah. You're allowed yeah. to feel your feelings. But, but also, 
get good. I mean. <laughs> Says the undisputed uh, champion of Monopoly in, in my personal circle, at least. <laughs> I mean, I said what I said. So. <laughs> All right. Well, um, okay, bye. bye.